The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. So we're in Luke 9. And if you remember, we've, we've seen Jesus' majesty, right? And we've got to see it on the mountain, right, where he was transfigured. And his face shined like the sun, his clothing was white. And then we got to see, really, his majesty in, in the valley, even last week. It said they were amazed. They were astonished because Jesus comes down and he casts the, the demon out of the boy who had been suffering pretty much all of his life. And the father was desperate. He says this demon shatters him. And I remember Kevin saying last week, he said, the, the Savior of the shattered. And I'm like, well, that was really good. Like I, that, that picture, right? And that's who Jesus is. And it, and it caused them to respond in awe, in worship, right? And so as you read that, you're not surprised to know that in verse 43, the first part of it says, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. We would expect that, right? I mean, if you're seeing these stunning things, you would expect to be, you're in awe. You would think that this display of God's glory would cause them to feel small, to shrink, right? I mean, have you ever had that moment, a moment like that? Not, not you got to see his, you know, Jesus and his face shining, but like maybe you got to see this stunning thing. Maybe you got to see the ocean for the first time and you felt very small as you looked out across and you thought, how far does this thing go? Maybe you were in a terrifying storm and you thought, well, this is beyond my power. And you saw all these different things. I remember taking my, my daughter uh, to, to Maine once and she was making her mom very nervous because she was sitting at the edge of a cliff. And if she fails, she's going to go see Jesus face to face, right? Um, it, it's, you're not surviving that drop. And she's sitting there, and she's kicking her feet. She's very young, and she doesn't know better. But I, I actually, I can see she's scared enough. She's got good enough healthy fear. She's fine. Jess is freaking out. I'm a little freaked, but I can't show that because my wife's freaking out. So I'm like, she's fine. So I go, and I sit down beside her, and she's looking out at the ocean. And I said, what are you thinking? And she goes, this is amazing. And I was like, it is pretty amazing. She goes, I just feel so small. And I said, well, sweetie, that's a, that's a good feeling. That's a good feeling. And, and I think she was trying to figure out what that meant. She was working through it. She was very young, right? And, um, but we began to discuss why that's a good thing. Well, you would think that's what happened to the disciples. But look at verse 46. It says, And an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Okay. Does anyone else find that to be strange. I mean, I find this very strange, right? It's very interesting that they just got straight up rebuked by Jesus for not trusting him, for not praying. And, for, and now they're like, okay, okay, but who, who's the best here? I mean, okay, I know we didn't do it great, but like, there's got to be a pecking order, right? So, okay, we all kind of blew it, but who blew it the least? It's the strangest thing. Maybe I, I'm like, why are they asking this? Maybe there's some jealousy at play, right? Um, and the reason I say that is because Peter, James, and John got to go to the, the mountain with Jesus and to pray, and they got to see Elijah and Moses showing up in glory, and the other nine are down at the bottom of the hill, and, and they're, they're dealing with all the mess, and then they come down. So I, this is all conjecture. Maybe one of these guys that were up at the mountain would be like, guys, you really blew it. You, you blew it, man. We were up there. We, we got to see some pretty amazing things. 
Well, they're not allowed to talk about that. But maybe they said, I can't believe you didn't trust, trust Jesus to, to get this done, man. We had to come down here and fix your blow up. I don't know if that happened. But you, why ask this question? I don't know. In one sense, it's very crazy. But in another breath, if we just know ourselves well enough, it's not that strange. Right? Could we be honest? I mean, it's not that strange. The world we live in tells us that we measure personal worth by really what we do. Well, that's, the, that's the air you breathe, right? Um, maybe it's physical appearance, right? Well, she's beautiful. He's, be- well, he's handsome. He's strikingly handsome. Maybe it's, you know, material possessions. You know, the one who dies with the most toys wins. Um, maybe it's professional. You, you've worked very hard or, or intellectual. You got all these degrees and then that's actually led to greater professional achievements. But we, maybe, or, or now, okay, those were the norms then, uh, then, 10 years ago. Now, social media presence. Who has the most likes? Because, listen, degrees are hard and expensive. So let's just be trending. Let's do something silly. Let's get everybody to like that. And then what? I've arrived. I just find it amazing how many people listen to people they don't know anything about, but because they have a million followers, you do realize millions of people follow cults all day, every day. And now they're trending. <gasps> what do they have to say? Who cares? Who cares? Especially when we unhinge ourselves as a culture from truth. Who cares? But this is what we do. This is how we're wired. And, and by the way, no one teaches you this. Nobody teaches you this. Don't believe me? Hang out with kids. They're always playing king of the hill one way or another. They're always trying to figure out who the alpha person is, right? And might makes right. You know, like, not my kid. Give your kid time. It's in them, I promise you. Our, our culture uses these categories as measurements, really, as measurements of significance. And, and they want it to be understood, right? They want it to be qualified, and they want it to, they, they, we diligently seek after the applause of man. And so the disciples, they're, they're no different. They're no different. By the way, this is not a new phenomenon. So, so, you know, I said, well, 10 years ago, this has always been the case. You can just, it's a little more obvious, I think, at least to me, right? Because we've just quit trying to cover it up. We used to try to cover it up. You know, you maybe mow your neighbor's lawn and I feel better about myself. Go serve in a soup kitchen. Help some needy people out, right? That's how you would cover it up. Why? Because ever since the fall, humanity does not want to worship God. It wants to be worshipped. It's always been this way since the fall, right? We want to be great, we don't want to worship the one who is great. Why? Well, the Bible is very clear. Because prior to salvation, you're of your daddy the devil. Well, that, I don't know if I heard that. I thought we were all God's children. No, you're all born under God's wrath and enemies of God until you're born again. That's what the Bible teaches. So, well, why would it be like Satan? Because Satan didn't want to worship God. He wanted to be God. And that's why he was cast out of heaven. And so then you've got Adam and Eve, and and we're going all the way back to Genesis, but we're not going to stay there long. They did not want to worship that which is great. They wanted to be great. They wanted to be like God. And they bought the lie. And and man, we've been buying it ever since. We've been buying it ever since. Everyone wants to be great. Don't believe me? What's the NBA playoffs? I'm stunned. 
that a seven foot three guy celebrates dunking on a ten foot rim. His arms are probably seven feet long. He's, he's able to reach 12 feet into the sky and dunk on a 10-foot rim. I mean, I remember the days of Spud Webb. He's at least like five, six or something dunking on a 10. Okay, now that's impressive, right? That's pretty great. You're 7'2 with your arm stretched, 9, you got a foot. That's not, I mean, it's not that impressive. But it's not just NBA, but you can really see it there, right? It's MMA. It's, it's just everywhere. Well, it was in the disciples. So don't be surprised if it's in you and I. See, that's the point. And Jesus is so kind because he's, he's, he's willing to correct their stinking thinking. Because it really is not going to be helpful if they're going to do the work that he's sending them on. Remember, we're in the heaviest and thickest parts from chapter 9 to 18 about Jesus' mission to send these men and women out to spread His message of grace and forgiveness. That's what the mission they're on. And they and you and I, we always need an attitude adjustment if we're ever going to do that which God has called us to do. Okay? And so, here we are. And, and look at verse 47. So remember, they just said, which one of us is great? Like, hey, could you just kind of give us a pecking order? Like, 1 through 12, let's go. And Jesus said, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. So they didn't come to Jesus with this question. Notice that. They're just, they're kind of chitter-chattering among. I bet, it, well, we're, we know who the top three are. What about the rest of you slugs, right? But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their heart, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now listen to this. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Boy, is that a countercultural lesson. That is not how we think naturally, right? Um, the point is, by the way, the point is not how some have suggested that Jesus is saying there's something in, inherently great about children. Boy, our culture gets this wacky, right? He had no romanticized thinking about children. And you're like, oh, sure he did. No, he loved children, but he did not elevate children. He didn't think this is what greatness looks like in the way that you and I might think greatness looks, right? So he knew why is he setting this child up as, a, as an illustration? That is the question you have to ask when you're, running, when you're reading this text. Jesus is taking this child as an example, as someone who has very little that would make you say he's great. Now, now our culture, oh, he's so great. She's so great. They, that's not this culture. This, that's not this culture at all. In that time, a child had no power. A child had no money. A child had no recognition or, or accomplishments that would make you say, they're great. Now our culture, we, we love to worship creature rather than creator, so we take a gift that's from God and we worship it. And so you can see that. But our culture is very strange, right? Because we go to two extremes, right? We either elevate children to where they don't belong. And man, I feel for these kids because sometimes they grow up in homes where everyone's putting all the weight of their hopes and their dreams on this child. 
the chosen one, right? And I want them to play baseball like I never could play, or I want them to do this like I could never do that. And so we elevate them. And, and you want to know how you know? Look at your schedule. Look at where all your money goes. Look at where all your anxiety comes from. Right? All your time, talent, energy goes towards little Stevie, right? Becoming what? What I never could become, and now I'm going to put all my hope in Stevie. And really what you do is you end up crushing that child. Or, worse yet, Stevie becomes everything you dreamt, and now you've got, like, Hitler, right? Why? Because you worship little Stevie. Or, so that's, that's one error I think our culture makes. So we elevate children, or we just eliminate them as a clump of tissues. That's it. And both are a worship problem, by the way. One worships self, one worships Stevie. Right? This is an inconvenience. I'm not going to worship, I'm going to worship me. And so you eliminate. We all need to have our minds continually transformed by the Word of God. You're, you're a disciple of someone or something, I promise you that. I promise you that. You are a product, not just of your own imagination. You, you know, the Bible says over and over to have your mind transformed, not conformed or like shoved into a mold of the culture around you, right? And Jesus is correcting their thinking. He's saying, this young boy is greatness in my kingdom. Why is, he, why is this boy great? That's the question you really have to ask. And, and it's because, and he, he goes on, he says, if you're willing to embrace this child, to receive this child who's nothing to you, that's what he's saying. He offers you nothing. He can offer you nothing. If you'll receive this child in my name, that means for my sake or as my disciple, well then you'll be receiving Jesus as himself. And you'll be receiving the one who has sent him, the Father. So, so he said, get it. He says, receiving anyone, no matter how lowly that is linked to King Jesus, is as good as receiving Jesus himself. He's, he's saying, it matters greatly how you treat the least of these, not those who you think is great. I see this all the time in my own heart, and, and, and it's, it's, I see it around us. It's just so easy to, to go to the bright, shiny, happy people, and it's like, ooh, I want them to like me. And then there's a person with warts and scabs, and you don't even know their name. What's up with that? Our culture is so strange, right? Oh, you're old, therefore you have no value. Actually, they could teach you something. Or you're a teen, therefore you have no value, because I can't even stand you. We, we do this everywhere. We just set up these pecking orders, and Jesus is saying, you're, you're never going to reach anyone if that's your heart. You better learn what genuine greatness looks like, guys. And so he's helping them to see Jesus is calling his disciples to imitate him by showing love to even the very least in his kingdom. He's, he's calling them, he's calling us to humility, to service. He's calling them to love. As Jesus loves, not, not like our culture thinks of love as like this warm emotional feeling, but to serve, love is action. To love those who you just, they have nothing to give me back. Even the lost world serves people to get something. But can you serve someone who get, can give you nothing? Well, if you can, well, you're, now you're at the heart of Christ. You're at the heart of Christ. They're never going to rep you. They're not on TikTok. 
They're, they're never going to say, man, went to the barbecue with my peeps today. Boom, send that out. And by the way, if you do that, you can do that in a good heart. I am not judging that. I'm just trying to help us see that you might not be doing that in a great way. I don't know. I'm not your Holy Spirit. You have to do work with God, right? I, he's been doing work with me all week. Now you're in it. It's a call to love what Jesus loves. It's a call to do what Jesus does. So we've seen this all throughout Luke's gospel, right? This is why we've titled the sermon series. I hope you understand why. We've called it a feast for failures. You're starting to see why it's titled that? All over Luke, we're seeing in his gospel that the people who have been held up as true models of greatness the heroes, let's say, are the marginalized, the insignificant. I mean, for Pete's sakes, we got a pregnant virgin. Think about that for a minute. You're not paying attention or it's not as funny to you. We have a tax collector, right? Great. A woman who, who, who let's say she had a pretty rough job in prostitution and she's filled with demons. And now Jesus is saying, well, she understands she's worshiping. Oh, she's, she's given all of herself. The people who seem great in the eyes of the world are not necessarily perceived in the same way by Jesus. That's not how God's kingdom works. And that's what Jesus is teaching. We ought not be surprised, though, right? If you understand the gospel, this should not be shocking to you. The one who's regarded as small, weak, dependent, a child, is actually the perfect illustration of the person who's ready to receive God's grace. Why? Because they are needy. Oh, they're very dependent. If you don't feed that child, that child's going to starve. It's going to die. So they're needy. They are very needy. The, the people of the world thinks it's great. It's, they're not needy. I don't need God. Why? Well, essentially, they wouldn't tell you this because they think they're God. I got every, I don't, why do I need to pray, you know, Father, give me bread? I got filet mignon, right? I, I don't need to pray for that. That's just silly. I mean, I'm sure there are some poor folks in other third world countries who need some bread. We'll maybe send them a couple bucks and get them some bread. I don't need bread. They're independent. We love to be autonomous. And, and Jesus is saying, man, if you, if you want to follow me, you're going to be brought very low. And you're going to realize you're going to need me. And he, Jesus, that's exactly how Jesus is living, by the way. As a spirit-filled man, he is very dependent upon the Father. That's why he prays. He gets weak. He takes a nap. He asks for God the Father to fill him with more strength. He's walking as a fully man and fully filled with the Spirit of God. And he is very dependent. And he's teaching us. You find it stunning that Jesus in His humanity is praying to God. He Himself has created everything and nothing has ever been created apart from Him, but actually has been created through Him and for Him. And here He is, and He's praying. And He's saying, He's not just doing that as an object lesson for you, by the way. He's needy in His humanity. And He's saying, you guys are worried about who's great? Think about it. This is how we all come into the kingdom. As humble, needy sinners, desperate to receive forgiveness and the gift of grace and the gift of mercy that only God can provide. However, i got to tell you, before, if you're not careful, after receiving this gift of grace, grace can kind of lose its luster. Right? We can begin to drift. 
we can begin to actually shrink grace and even our recognition of grace in our hearts. And, and we've all been there, by the way. If not, give it time. It will happen. It does happen. You start to drift slowly, and I'm going to explain what I mean by that, but we start to see some positive changes in our life. A little transformation. Maybe it's big transformation, right? And as that happens, we become kinder, right? Hopefully that's good. Okay, a little nicer. Our music selection maybe changes. Our language slowly starts to change. We stop watching maybe, you know, PG-13 movies unless Jesus is being murdered in them. And, you know, our external destructive habits, well, they just seem to disappear. And gosh darn it, golly gee, we're some nice folks. And man, when that happens, you start to make the mistake of thinking you're really good. You start to to start to wrongly think that, that we're the good people and everyone out there, that's the bad people. It's like an old Western, you know? We're the guys and gals in white and they're in black and we've got to win them over. Well, in one sense, that's true. But how the original Western started, everyone was on black horses doing evil things. Jesus triumphantly came in on a white horse and he started to take people from the evil team and like... Bring them into His kingdom of light. We were in the domain of darkness, now we're brought over. That's all grace. But now you start to think, well, who's the greatest of this little tribe? And we have a little pecking order, and we start to look down people from our ivory tower and start to say, well, why don't they just get it? They're so... And you can fill in the blank. Well, we do this. We become proud of our apparent sanctification, being more like Jesus. It, it's, it's almost a way to say, well, look at me. I've read my Bible in a year twice. Because I know once isn't that impressive anymore. And you're like, oh man, if I could read a chapter in a year, well, that'd be impressive. Okay, well, you really you need to dedicate some time there. But listen, our knowledge of the Bible, the way we behave, all these different things... We start to think we are the ones responsible for that grace. And the mystery of the grace actually just starts to diminish. I mean, Jesus got me in, but I mean, I've been really doing the thing here. I've been really doing the thing. I'm the one getting up and reading my Bible. I'm the one getting up praying. I'm the one doing the thing. And so we start to become proud of our spirituality. Maybe it's never happened to you. It's certainly happened to me. I'm so guilty of this. Why? Well, because I'm very competitive. I like to win. I still like to win. And there's a way to do that well, but it's a fine line for me. It's a real fine line for me. And if I'm not careful, I'm way off that line. So then what happens is we become tribal. If you don't know what I mean by that, we're going to get some help from this text. Because I think that, that boy, they are so linked together. So linked together. So it continues. Look with me. Verse 49 and 50. So they just had this discussion about greatness. Jesus you know, says, this young boy says, do you want to see greatness? Look at, this, look at this little dude. He doesn't have much to offer. But if you receive him in my name, you receive the Father, you receive me, you receive the message. The message is greater than the messenger. Receive this one. And then John answered. He says, Master... We saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him. <laughs> oh, that's funny. 
because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now this is interesting, right? This is, okay, if you're like, eh, not really. This is really interesting. Here's why, because we've got some mysterious exorcist dude just running around casting out demons. And, and if you remember last week, Last week, we got nine disciples who have been empowered to cast out all, capital A-L-L, demons, and they can't do it. But now you got someone who's not even in this particular tribe following Jesus and the disciples. He's just got some success. He's just casting out demons in Jesus' name. And they're like, knock it off. We don't want people freed unless you're with us. Oh, whew. We tried to stop him. Why? Because he doesn't follow with us. He's part of that like Arminian tribe or something. <laughs> He's part of that Calvinist tribe. I mean, they just don't do it the way we're doing it. We don't, what? This is an interesting little clip, man. I, I, I have been wrestling with this all week. We don't know a ton about what's going on here. However... Don't you find it interesting that the guy that's having success casting out demons, while the disciples, he couldn't do it for the boy who was being shattered by a demon and had a desperate dad begging them. They could not do it because they weren't actually trusting in Jesus to get it done. And here's this person's not even following in this group of people, and he must be trusting in Jesus' name. And it's, he's having success. And they're like, you need to knock that off, bro. You're making us look bad. Stop. Man, the same selfish pride that drove the disciples to seek social status, pecking order in the, in the scale, the social scale, the discipleship scale, in their tribe awakens them to ensure that outsiders remain outside and that they're not empowered. It's, by the way, caution. This text is not teaching some sappy, sentimental, interfaith, ecumenical, where we all just sing and hold hands and sing kumbaya and we're all just God's children. It's like a redo of Whitney Houston and Michael Jackson. It's not what it's saying here. I'm going to be very clear. We, 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 now we love, everybody I'm about to mention, we absolutely love the way that Jesus says to love. But we don't say they're on team Jesus. We don't hold hands with Mormons in faith because they are, they're not trusting in King Jesus. We don't hold hands with Jehovah's Witness, although we love and serve Jehovah's Witness because they don't know and trust in King Jesus, right? We don't cozy up to New Age Christianity that's trusting in a crystal and not in the Holy Spirit, even though they use spirit-sprinkled language. Now, we get to know them, and we, we seek to love them, but we, you cannot love people apart from truth. Oh, man, this culture doesn't understand that. We say we're loving people. We're really hurting them because we're afraid to tell them what they actually need to hear. But then, the, man, I'm so quick to say, but hold on, because what most people mean when they say that is then say, well, they're like a tin can, and I've got the sword of truth, and I just crush them. And give them the truth. (laughs) We both need alignment. How do we be courageous and compassionate 
and commission with Jesus. Well, I'll tell you, the cross. You, you, if you love people with the truth and no grace, you're not giving them truth. Even if the words you're saying are true, because it's not coming from a heart of love. And if you give them, quote-unquote, grace, but you're not giving them truth, you're actually not giving them grace. Jesus came full of grace and truth. The only way to give the, the culture, the city, the people who are not yet convinced of the gospel is to present Jesus as who He is. He's full of grace and He's full of truth. So it's with love. And that's not always been the case. I mean, we don't join hands with people who deny that Jesus is fully God. We don't join hands with people who deny that Jesus is fully human. We don't join hands with people who say that Jesus was not sinless. We don't join hands with people that say Jesus is not the only way of salvation. He's just one of many ways of salvation. We don't join hands with people who say Jesus did not have to die as a sacrifice for our sin, as an atonement. We don't join hands with people who say Jesus did not truly rise from the grave, but He didn't need to. No, He had to. Or, or you're not trusting in Orthodox Christianity. We don't join hands with people that say, Jesus is not coming back to judge the living and the dead. He's coming back to give us all a hug like a Care Bear. Why? Because if you don't believe those things, and I don't say this with arrogance, you are not a Christian. To be a Christian is to trust in Christ, and you can't say, here's the Christ I trust in if that's not the Christ who is. Do you see? But we don't say this with arrogance. See, the, the text is not encouraging us to join hands with anyone and everyone and say, well, we all worship our own version of God. What Jesus is attempting to do here, though, is to, to really prevent a jealous or narrow mindset among his people. That's the correction, right? Here, here, by the way, here at For the City Church, we believe that it will take many healthy expressions of God's local church to reach the city, not just for the city. You and I are not the answer for Greensburg. Thank God. Right? I struggle to get my yard mowed sometimes. How am I going to save the city? Well, I'm not, and neither are you. We need other gospel-believing, Jesus-loving expressions of His church. And they might not fit your tribe of people, and that's okay. It's okay. Why? Because we all need friends in this mission. We need friends. It's amazing to me that when, when, when a handful of us decided to move to Greensburg to plant for the city church, how many people that I just would not necessarily go to their church, even now, it's not because it's bad, it's just not how I would line up, we're ready to just write checks to get us here. Pentecostal, charismatic, reformed. And you might be like, I don't even know what any of those things mean. Well, then you're probably better off than most. They were ready. Why? Because it was about King Jesus, not their tribe. It was so encouraging to me. And then, just this past Thursday, I get together every other Thursday with a handful of pastors from Greensburg, and we're all on the same team, even though I think most of them got some things wrong, right? Like one of them just doesn't think Jesus can get 
all his sheep to the end. I'm like, bro, come on. Jesus don't lose sheep. Read your Bible. And I tell him that, just so you know, right? And, and we got some folks who they believe maybe a little different in this and that, but we're all on the same team. We all believe the main things that matter for the tenets of faith in Christianity, and I love going there. And we have vibrant disagreements, by the way. V- vibrant. I'm not going to hang out with you if I can't disagree with you at some level. I'm just, I'm just not, because I can't fake it with you, right? If you're going to get to know me, you're going to get to know me, and there will be times where I have to apologize because my passion has come out really strong and scared everybody. <laughs> and I didn't mean it that way, but it happens, right? But we vibrantly disagree, but when we leave there, we actually leave very united around the thing that matters, and that's Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And man, I love hearing when, when God's doing a great thing in their church. But i got to tell you, there was a time I maybe didn't celebrate that the way I should. Why? Well, because they're going to get, you know, some... It's not the greatest teaching. It's just going to be okay. Get over yourself, Scott. I'll tell you, we need friends in this field because it takes many healthy churches to reach a city. And so pray for them. This does not... By the way, I'm, I want to be so clear. This does not require us to water down our convictions. Rather, submit our convictions in the Bible's exhortation to the exhortation of love and unity. Unity, though, is not uniformity. It doesn't mean we all have to be the same and believe exactly the same thing about every little nook and cranny, but we do have to believe the main things. And if you're like, well, what are those main things? Keep sticking around. I mentioned most of them when I talked about Jesus being fully God and all these things. But if you have questions, I can answer that. You can send me a, an email, grab a coffee. But, but here's why this matters. Here's why it matters. Because before we can be of any use in this city, and I know God could use us regardless, either through us or in spite of us, but I mean in a way that's through us, okay? Before we can be any use in this city, to our neighborhoods, to our neighbors, we have to have an absolute attitude adjustment always to align our hearts and our minds with the thinking of Christ. Where we turn from pride to humility, and humility is not groveling, by the way. Well, there's a confusion in our culture about that, where it's like, oh, I'm just so, I'm such a loser. Look at me. Bleh. Like a jellyfish. Actually, that's, that's pride too. It's just reverse. You're still thinking about you. Oh, I don't like that. Too bad. Humility is thinking just a lot less about yourself. And when you're thinking about Jesus and when you're worshiping Jesus, guess what you're not thinking about? Right? Why? Because you can't, you can't see Christ and be like, yeah, but look at my freckle. You just can't. You're too blown away with what you're seeing. You're seeing Him. And when you see Him, you'll know because you'll shrink and He'll increase. And you'll know because that changes everything in your life. And, and i got to tell you, this church in particular, I told someone this week, I hate going to pastor gatherings. I just tell you that right now. I don't mean the prayer gathering. I mean where we all go and sing and talk about strategies and blah, blah, blah. And someone's like, hey, how's your church? I almost always know what they mean by that. How? ABCs, attendance, buildings, cash. That's what they mean. And I never know how to answer it because I know what they want and I don't want to give them that. So I'm like, you know what? Our church is great. And I'm going to tell you why it's great. They are a joy to love and they're a joy to be loved by. And I just am so thankful for the disciples that are in our gathering. And I mean that. So, so when, I'm, when I'm 
going through this text. The reason we're going through this text is because we all need this, but I want you to know I see this. I don't want you leaving discouraged. Like, man, we, we really do suck. We need to get our head right. No, I'm saying I see this work being done by God in this people. Have we arrived? No, we'll never arrive until Jesus returns. But, but I see us striving by His grace to, to be more like Him. And it's thoroughly encouraging. I'm so thankful to see it. I'm so thankful to be a part of it. But here's the deal. If we want to reach this city, then this is the heart that needs to be produced in us by God. And here's the question. Are we willing to let Him? And I know He'll do it regardless. His way. But that doesn't mean it'll be through us. I think so many times we wrongly think that. He, he, he might just put your lamp out. If you don't know what that means, it's okay. He's just saying, you're not representing me, so I'll take away your witness to the world. You're to be a city on the hill, shining light. And if you're not doing that, I'll just, I'm just going to put you to sleep. Turn the lamp out. Let it go. And I'll do it through other people. Are, are we eager to let them is another question. Are we, are, we, are we asking for this to happen? For His glory, for our good, for the joy of the city? Are we seeking to, to do this by His Spirit, through His Word, for His glory? That's the question. But here's the thing, all too often, the answer that comes back is, is no. But what I mean by that is not an outward no. Because we're very clever. We would never do that. Because then, well, who's the greatest? Well, not you. So we, we passively say no. We become a little hard-hearted. And, and how, do you, how do you know? I'll tell you how you know. It's us four, no more, bar the door. If you ain't like us, you're not for us. And if we're not for us, we're not for you. And it's not about King Jesus. It's about, ooh. And how do you know that? I'll tell you how. You're so easily offended. You're so easily offended, right? You're so quick to anger. If we don't get our way, well, then we pout. And we're very slow to serve people who can do nothing for us. But we can serve the elite because they might help us. That's why it's funny to me when some famous person gets saved and it's like, imagine what they can do for the kingdom. I mean, okay, they have a platform, but a bunch of nobodies brought the gospel to the world. But we're like, yeah, but they have a big platform. This child, you want to know what greatness looks like? This child coming in my name. We celebrate the wrong things. And in a culture where in the churchdom, this is slowly reversing, by the way, in unhealthy ways, other way, where it's like, oh, this preacher or this worship leader, or this singer, or this whatever. We celebrate the wrong people when probably it's, it's the person that you would least expect in the gathering that miss, you just don't see them. That's probably the greatest. It's probably the greatest. Why does that happen? I'll tell you why it happens. I've seen it. Because the story and the glory of the church becomes greater than the story and glory of Jesus Christ. It's just a slow drift. No one starts there. But we can get there quick. We begin to build a brand image instead of building the body of Christ. Start talking about like, look at what God's done here. But we talk about here instead of God. 
I'm going to tell you right now, the best gospel work must first take place in our hearts if it's ever going to go out to the city. And then, by God's grace, that beauty that happens in the heart of this body will start to overflow into the lives of the people we come in contact with as we humbly serve them the gospel around us. I'm, listen, I'm thoroughly convinced more and more that until we are intentionally and persistently seeking humility by God's grace, the world's not going to listen to a word that Christians have to say. It's not. I was not born, born again. At 23, the Lord rescued me. Brought me home. And I'll tell you, one of the greatest hindrances is working in the business field and interacting with Christians on Sunday after church. Just none of it made sense. This is God's people, then I'll stick on the devil. Right? Like, I didn't say it that way, but I mean, all the music I was taught, listening to said it that way. I, I'm telling you, we need to take a posture. When I say we, I mean just God's people need to take a posture of grace. And if you do that, it's the most countercultural thing you can do. That will turn the world upside down when you start to love those who don't love you and you keep loving them. And not in some cheesy Ned Flanders kind of way, but you really seek to serve them. You really seek to love them. Why? Because that's what true greatness looks like. How do I know? The gospel. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to follow a crucified Messiah, then genuine greatness is going to look a little different than we probably think. Right? Like, what is Jesus saying? Here's point one. Thankful, we got one point. And I'm trying to say it the whole time. So hopefully it's not like, oh, that's what he's saying. <laughs> point one, one point, main point, the point. Genuine greatness is being willing to deny oneself pick up their cross, and follow Jesus in humbly loving the least of these for Jesus' sake. That's at the heartbeat of the transformation that happens from the Holy Spirit in the life of a believing people. Why? Well, because at the end of the day, you and I, we are the ones who are hungry, thirsty, impoverished, sick, and imprisoned, and desperate to be freed. And because of what Jesus Christ has done in His life, death, and resurrection, we have been brought into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Mark 10.45 says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. You see the heart He's asking us to have? It's His heart. That's what He's asking for. Jesus came to, not to be served, but to die. That was His service to the Father and for this world. To give his life as a ransom, right? That sets him apart from every other major religious person or figure, right? The person was, you know, many times, every other religion, their purpose was to live and to be an example. Jesus' purpose was to die as a sacrifice. Big difference. I'm not saying he's not an example, but not primarily. He came to die. And we can learn from that example, but what it is, is it's He did everything we needed Him to do to receive. To receive. Christianity is not what about you and I do. It's about what Jesus has done. Therefore, it's finished. Therefore, I trust Him. I trust Him. 
And from the overflow, that's the example that I follow. That's what Jesus is calling us to. A life of humble service. Why? Because love that changes anything, that really changes anything, I'm talking about you, your family, your neighborhood, the city, the world, is that redeems things, that renews things, will always require sacrifice. That's what worship is. It's going to cost you, but it's costed him everything. He's actually paid the bill. So you can trust him. Why? Well, because influence that's gained through power and control actually doesn't actually change anything. I know kids who grew up in a very law-based home. And on the outside, they looked great, but it didn't change anything. They just figured out how to live in the law of the land. So they faked it. And then they left, and they said, I want nothing to do with that. But if we want to see real change, it has to be change that starts in this heart first, in this people first, and goes out. Right? So imagine if we really embraced this life, that the way up is actually down. What might the Lord do? I'm hoping to find out. I'm hoping to find out. Why? Because by God's grace, if, if we, imagine if we were so sacrificially loving our family, our neighbors, our city, this people. Right? Jesus says, you'll know my disciples by how they love one another. And other churches in this area. Imagine if we were to do that so, by God's grace, so well that this city would never want us to leave. Why? Because it would, it would not be good. I've seen some of this happen in very small ways already. Business owners who don't love Jesus, but man, they love some of you because of the way you've been loving them. And it's changing their idea of what Christianity and church is. Listen, here's the deal. We are living in a time where more and more people are walking away from organized religion or the church or Christianity, and they're doing what's called deconstructing. And they want nothing to do with the church. And so what they're doing is they're, they're actually they're creating their own religion. And it's, it's, it's a mix of this and it's a mix of that. And, and the reason is, is because they don't want anything to do, really, at the heart of it, with Jesus. That's ultimately why. But they have all these different reasons as to why. And I say, well, it's the church's fault. So I guess I've been thinking about how, how do we even talk through all of that with this, this different people. So I, we have enough guests here that I would want to even say that I want to take a moment to even apologize if for any reason the church, I have no authority to do this, by the way, if, if the church has just ever left a really bad taste in your mouth that was real, because some of it's just perceived. I've been loved by many Christians long before I ever received Jesus, and I didn't want to receive Jesus because I didn't want to change. I love my sin too much. So I'm not talking that, but if you may have really been hurt, I know a couple of people in this city who have been grievously sinned against, and it's a big hindrance to them receiving Christ. And so I've been praying that the Lord would remove that hurt. But, but I want you to know, if, if anyone's ever just beat you over the head with the Bible, made, made you feel real small, maybe it was on Facebook or Instagram, this, that, that's not representing the Savior and His message. It's not. I'm not saying those people weren't Christians. We blow it. The greatest thing you and I could ever do is say we're sorry when we blow it. 
when we sin against people. Well, I've had people say, well, I've come to receive Christ, but I can't tell my friends and family about Jesus because I've hurt them along the way. It's one of the most powerful things you could ever do is say, I've received this gift of grace and mercy, and I now realize I've been hurting you and sinning against you. Would you please forgive me? I want to tell you about the one who forgave me. It's powerful stuff. It's powerful stuff. So here's the deal. If that's you, you're wrestling with the gospel, you're not sure what you believe, and, and you might say, well, it's because these Christians hurt me. Don't let maybe some Christians who hurt you keep you from receiving Christ. And I'm going to tell you right now, I think most churches really seek to love God and love people. That's the people I've come in contact with. But I'm also not naive. But here's the deal. Our efforts aren't sufficient. I just spent 40 minutes telling you they are. They're not. They're not sufficient. Jesus has come into this world as the Son of God to prove the love of God to a rebellious, sinful people. That's what He's done. And He proved it. He proved God's love for you and us in the fact that He died on a cross for our sins. It's the greatest expression of love ever. You want to see it? Romans 5, 6-8 through 8 says this. For while we were still weak, meaning we can't do this thing, we can't save ourselves, we can't be good enough, we can't measure up to the law, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Not, not the, the good, the ungodly. That, that, man, I remember hearing that text for the first time and it, and it like punched me between the eyes. I always thought Jesus was just for these good people. Here was what I understood. There are no good people. Jesus died for the ungodly. Well, I, I was like, I qualify. If that's the qualification, I fit. Because I knew I was ungodly. I was very ungodly. And you might be like, I bet you were. Well, so were you. But it says this, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But listen, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the greatest picture of love ever. We need to receive grace. If we're ever going to give it, we need to receive mercy. If we're ever going to give it, we need to continually, every day, continue to just receive what is true, which is the forgiveness of sins for us in Christ by faith alone. I trust that Jesus died to save sinners who I am absolutely one of. And if you will, if you will anchor yourself to that news, and not even the news, but Jesus who is that news. Jesus is the good news. Right? If you just embrace Him, you can't help but take on this posture. You can't help but take on it. Why? Because here's the beauty, and this is where it's all going in Luke. Jesus is not going to leave us alone. And I don't mean like He's going to pester us, although He'll pester you. He's going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you're here and trusting in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit of the living God dwelling in you to empower you to get low. To, to embrace true greatness. To embrace the road of humility. To deny yourself. To pick up your cross. To follow Jesus. Why? Because He has done it all. In His perfect life, 
His substitutionary death. And how do we know that it was sufficient? Because he had a triumphal resurrection on the third day. And he now ascended to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for all who believe. And so if you're here and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, I want you to know that today can absolutely be the day of salvation. He died to prove his love to you. He loves you. If you're, you're wondering, hey, I don't know. I don't know if God loves me. No, he, what more could he do? Answer, nothing. He's done it all. And you might be thinking, well, why did he die, though? And I know it said Christ died for us. Here's why. Because you and I have rebelled against God in every shape, form, and fashion. We have worshipped creature over creator. And because of that, you and I are sinners. Rebels against God. And because God is holy and because God is just, He cannot not punish sin. And sin isn't something you just do. You're a sinner by nature and by choice. And therefore, you have a, a payment that you owe. And the Bible says that the payment for sin, the wages of sin, is death. And death is more than just a dirt nap. It's, it's wrath for eternity in hell. And you might say, well, that sounds so like cavemanish, so simple, so stupid. It's the truth. It's the truth. A sin against an eternal and infinite God is not just something he can be like, it's okay, buddy, let's go get an ice cream cone. So, here's the thing. He had to punish sin. Or he would not be good, and he would not be just. And so what did he do? You're like, well, he doesn't sound very loving. Oh, I'll tell you how loving he is. He sent his son. And his son came willingly. I don't want you to think he had to twist his arm. Jesus said, oh no, for the joy that was set before me, I'll go, Father. I will do what needs to be done to rescue this hell-bound people. And Jesus came and lived the perfect life you and I could never live. Everywhere we failed, he succeeded. And so he obeyed the law perfectly. And now he, he comes and he's a a substitute for you and I. He takes our place. He willingly goes to the cross to receive the wrath of God in the place of sinners. And he does that to display God's love, the length he would go to show his righteousness and to show his grace to a people. And so he pours out all his wrath upon his son. But because his son had no sin, he triumphantly resurrected from the grave, showing that his payment for sin was sufficient. And so now, if you receive in Jesus by faith, trusting this good news, this message that Christ died for sinners, if that's you, well, now you have life with God by faith. Well, what do I have to do? Receive Jesus. Repent of your sins. Turn from trusting in yourself and trust in the one who's done everything to show God's love for you. And when that happens, you'll receive forgiveness of all your sins and you'll receive a perfect righteousness that can only come from God. And therefore, you're born again. You're adopted into the family of God. And this is where life is found. And he's begin to do life with God. Church, that's the message we seek to give to this world. That's the most loving thing you could do. Will you embrace the downward path to joy? That's my prayer for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have sent Jesus who takes away our personal sins and you provide a perfect righteousness. We're so thankful that Jesus never failed, that he perfectly obeyed the law. Why? Because we escape the coming judgment, but we also, we, we receive life with you. 
And that's the best life. So Lord, if there's anyone here who's just not trusted in you as their Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that you would give them the gift of repentance and faith, that you would open their eyes and their hearts to see the greatest love displayed upon a cross. Lord, that you would transform this people to be a people who willingly embrace the cross, deny ourselves, and follow you to the day you return and live with you in glory. We ask this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.